You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 2. Be reading verses 13 through 25. John 2, 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured over the coins of the poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, have mercy on us for any sin that we may be clinging to now. Rubbing it in your face, as it were, as your church, the temple of the living God, assembles with Christ as her head. Father, convict us, bring to mind anything. May there be confession now, conviction as we proceed, repentance. Father, I pray for those who are here and they don't believe. They would not have a questioning, authoritative kind of posture such as we see of the authorities. Nor would they have a naive, spurious kind of belief that just looks for signs and experiences as the crowds. But they would kind of have the kind of faith that perseveres and grows and blossoms and strengthens like that of the disciples. The kind of faith that's rooted in your word, in the word of Christ. So bless now the preaching of your word to strengthen all of our faith. Seeing our sin, knowing our only hope is Christ. And resting there. In his name we pray, amen. Jesus was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not 
receive him. Chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. John was sent to bear witness to this light. Come into the world. He was not the light. He was to bear witness about the light. Chapter 1 and verse 8. And so, whenever the Jewish authorities come to John asking, Who are you? 118. Why are you baptizing? 125. Their failure to receive John's testimony was a failure to receive the Word become flesh. And this is acted out almost parabolically, if you will, in in the account of the wedding feast where the master of the feast is in the dark as to where this wine came from. The servants are in the know, but the master is clueless. And the conflict that's brewing is hinted at, anticipated with the Jewish, the the water parts that are used for the water pots that are used for the Jewish rites of purification in contrast to the wine brought about by Christ. And now this conflict, conflict that's been brewing is brought to a head right at the very beginning of John's gospel. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, verse 13. Which Passover? John will mention three. In chapter 6 and verse 4, there's a Passover mentioned in relation to the feeding of the 5,000. The third instance is mentioned repeatedly, repeatedly throughout the latter half of this gospel, chapters 13 onward, are all right at this time frame of that final Passover. And so the question is, is this Passover that Passover? Many scholars reckon so, that John has brought forward that episode of the cleansing of the temple from the final Passover forward in his gospel, that's what he's talking about here. Now, all the gospels are broadly chronological, but the immediate organizational principle in all of them is theological. All of them take us from Jesus' birth to his ministry to his death, but things are rearranged more on a theological scale in between them. And so the question is, Is the cleansing of the temple that the synoptic writers all mentioned at the end of Jesus' ministry brought forward by John here for theological reasons? That's a majority report among biblical scholars. Besides this, there are two other options. First being that Jesus cleansed the temple only at the beginning of His ministry, and it's Mark and Luke and Matthew who then bring it to the end for theological reasonings. That is the least satisfying, the least popular. In fact, I can't think of one serious scholar I read this past week that went with that option. The other option is that there are two cleansings, one at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, one at the end of His ministry, and the reason why that is thrown out and rejected by most is juvenile. It's as simple as this. It is an aversion to repetition. Some more complex reasons are given why this couldn't be done twice, but at its basic level, the reason why they don't, want, they don't think there could have been a cleansing at the beginning and the end is just an aversion to repetition. So, if a cleansing happened at the end of Jesus' ministry, and I believe it most certainly did, and I'll give some argument as to that. That's not the focus. But if one happened for sure at the end of Jesus' ministry, then the question is, is this cleansing of the temple a separate event? And I think on close examination, it's clear that it is. There are a number of hints that that's so, but the clincher, in my opinion, is verse 20, this little detail. It has taken 46 years to build this temple. 
Construction of Herod's temple began around 20 to 18 BC, 46 years, then brings us to, in the best estimate, I think being at the tail end of whenever Herod could have started that construction, brings us to 29 to 30, AD 29-30. So that's a few years before the best estimates as to when Christ was crucified. I think this happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It follows closely on the heels of what we've seen so far in John. I think John is the most strictly chronological out of all the gospel writers. So right at the beginning then, after John the Baptist has hailed Christ as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, Andrew, very likely the other unnamed disciple being John, Andrew and John have followed the Lamb of God as their shepherd to the Passover feast. So it is in John's gospel that Jesus first comes to the temple. And as He does so, there's no mistaking it that the Lamb of God must be slain. Jesus comes to the temple. Remember John 1.14 has told us the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The temple is the dwelling place of God. So, God dwelling among us comes to the dwelling place of God. Or as the Amplified Bible has it, translating it more strictly, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us or tented among us. So, the tabernacle comes to the temple. Or as we saw at the end of chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus is Jacob's ladder. So, Jacob's ladder comes to the ark, the footstool. Of God. The ladder comes to the footstool. Or Jacob's ladder means, uh, as, as Joseph, uh, excuse me, as Jacob recognized, this is Bethel. This is the house of God. So Bethel comes to Jerusalem. The house of God comes to the place where God made his name to dwell among his people. Now consider a question. You may have asked yourself earlier, why does John record only this episode at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? And why do the synoptic writers record only the latter episode? The synoptic gospels all build up in intensity of conflict between Jesus and And the authorities. John, it explodes right at the very beginning. The gospel writers also take you in general from Galilee to Jerusalem. That's the direction of the whole plot line. From Galilee to Jerusalem, building up in intensity. So that, with that latter cleansing of the temple, that's kind of one of the last acts that sets in motion, we're going to kill him. Mark 1, 11, 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So you see why they would leave that one episode towards the end building up in intensity for this, this as one of the last conflicts between Jesus and the authorities. John, though, opens with this early episode, only this one, And right at the beginning, why? John writes much later, most likely the 80s or 90s. What's transpired since then that the other gospel writers weren't writing in light of? John writes much later. And so whereas all the Gospels write in light of the temple of Christ destroyed and risen, John is writing in the aftershock of the temple of stone having been destroyed. And three times now, very early in this Gospel, 
He's spoken to us of Christ as the temple, as Jacob's ladder, as the tabernacle, as the word become flesh. You see what John is dwelling on real early here? And so as God tabernacled among us, comes into the temple, what does he find? Men selling oxen, sheep, pigeons, money changers. It's clear there's a problem. What is the problem? In the latter cleansing of the temple, Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7, Jeremiah 7, 11, saying, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. It's Luke 19, 46. So with that word robbers, one thing that's wrong is the exploitation, the price gouging that's going on. Here, none of that's mentioned at all. That's not highlighted. Now, to catch something of what's wrong with this, you need to kind of realize what isn't wrong. With the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews across the ancient world, this was a need, this was a blessing to be able to buy animals in Jerusalem for the sacrifices. To have the added stress of bearing an animal across the Roman roads all the way to Jerusalem. You're looking for a perfect animal and you're hoping it is in the same shape by the time you get to Jerusalem. You can imagine that. And then it's not just the animal. How are we going to secure it? How are we going to feed it all along the way? So it was a blessing to be able to procure an animal once you got to Jerusalem. And as they came from all over the empire, they came with their different currency. And so it was a blessing to be able to exchange your money. Most of them probably, what was happening was there was an exchange for Tyrian silver. This would be coin minted in Tyre. It was known for, the, the Tyrians were traders. And so they were known for their stringency. This was a very pure coinage and it was likely what was uh, everything, all the kind of transactions and offerings were made in this. And so this was all could be seen as a blessing, as a need. So put aside any potential shady business practices. This is earlier. Let's say that all happened later. It's in that later account that he highlights robbers. The more basic and fundamental problem is dealt with right here. And what is it? It was their previous practice, and I would guess because of the number of people who came into Jerusalem, the number of animals that are being sacrificed, it was still largely the practice that most of this happened in the Kidron Valley. So previously, this was outside the temple. All this kind of transaction was happening. Now, it's being brought into the court of the Gentiles on the temple precincts. The problem was, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. Even if they were doing as little profit margin as possible and being fair in all of their transactions, the problem is this was happening in the temple. And no doubt it was all in the name of convenience. It's convenient. Mark this well. Convenience is a deplorable guide to holy worship. It's not the convenience of our flesh, but the commands of our Father that are to guide us in our worship. I say this as we sit in comfortable chairs, with heat and air, restrooms, we want to be welcoming to our guests, yes. We want these things, but we don't want to be ascetic monks. But we don't have liberty to worship as it's convenient. That's not the guiding principle of why we do what we do. This building is no temple. But, right here, right now, 
The saints have assembled. The church of the living God has assembled. And this is a temple with Him dwelling in our midst. This is a holy place. And this is a holy time. Reverence and rejoicing. Gravity and gladness. Lamenting our sin. Lauding our Savior. I believe that's to be the predominant kind of atmosphere that pervades this place. And all of those things only as they are driven by the truth of God's Word. We've assembled simply for this purpose. To hear the Word. Preach the Word. Sing the Word. Speak the word to one another. See the word in the sacraments. All according to the word as it's instructed us to do so. And we don't have liberty to alter that parameter of which God has instructed us. Saints, behold the sanctity with which our Lord regards worship. And if this is true of this temple of stone, how much more so we who partake of the fullness of everything that's prefigured there. Don't think grace lessens the impact of what you're reading right here. How seriously should we take it whenever we are coming by the blood of Christ to the very throne of our Father in heaven? Yes, there should be liberty and freedom knowing there is no condemnation for us in Christ. That we come to our Father as sons. Yes, but we should not be cavalier. We shouldn't be loose. We shouldn't be irreverent. There is no license for our convenience, our preference to dictate how we come into the temple of the living God. Our Lord finds this market in the house of His Father. What does He do? He makes a whip. Note carefully, I think it's clear, this is no crime of passion. It needn't have taken a long time to make a whip, but He did take some time to make a whip. This is a premeditated act of justice. Jesus is angry, but his anger is under control. He controls his anger. It's not an anger that controls him. Jesus doesn't walk into this place and just let loose when he sees this. He acts. He doesn't react. He acts. When the fire of our Lord is let loose, it is a controlled burn. On this earth, it is always less than what we deserve. And in hell, it's nothing more than what man deserves. The anger of our Lord is the most fearsome thing in existence. But it is not a wild rage. So our Lord drives out the sheep and the oxen. I think we just read over that too lightly. Can you imagine the pandemonium? Oxen, sailors being driven out, trying to get their animals. As masses are trying to make their way to the temple. There is an outrageous number. The number that Josephus proposes for the number of animals that were sacrificed for Passover. The number of people that have come into the city. Even how exaggerated that number might have been. It was an It was already a cacophony of people, people, people everywhere. Sacrifices everywhere. And the kink that Jesus must have put into the machine by this act. (laughs) This wasn't a little blip on the radar. It commands those who sell the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. The ESV rightly highlights 
there's a contrast of two houses. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. There are churches, or at least there are persons who join a church as a house of trade. The trade might be political clout. The trade might be contacts. The trade might be prestige, being known as a Christian. The trade might be business. But convenient trade dictates their presence in what is the temple of the living God. And Jesus deplores that kind of worship. It provokes Him. It isn't that these men have brought in idols as their forefathers did. They have not profaned the temple with the profane. They've brought the common, the marketplace. They've brought the common into worship in such a way that they've profaned the holy with the common. There is a way that clean hands can defile holy worship. If your overall yearning for being here week after week, if the dominant reason why you want to assemble with the saints is not so that in Christ, by the Spirit, you might draw near to the Father. If it's something else, this is a house of trade for you. I know what the trade is. It might be as simple as it makes me feel better. It's a house of trade. It doesn't matter how squeaky clean you think your idol is. I'm not bringing something profane in here. Something common. You've made us the house of God a house of trade. And you need to know that by that you might please men, but you provoke the holy God of heaven. Why does this anger Jesus so? Is he not a friend of sinners? Jesus loves sinners. He does not love them more than he loves his Father. Jesus is a friend of sinners. He is no friend of sin. At the wedding feast, Jesus behaved as a guest. Here he behaves as a son. And he's come to his father's house. And his father's hospitality and grace and mercy to those who deserve nothing of it is being trampled on. Malachi prophesied, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. But who can endure? The day of his coming. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to Yahweh, then the offerings of Judah, then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing. He will purify, and then their offerings will be pleasing. Zechariah. The book concludes holding out the hope of the day of the Lord where he brings judgment on those who have persecuted his people. And it ends with this note. There shall no longer be a traitor in the house of Yahweh of hosts on that day. But the disciples are not said to remember either one of those passages. The one they call to mind is the 69th Psalm of David. And there the king cries out to God because of those who seek to destroy him. And the explanation for why they want to destroy him is this. Psalm 69, 7-9. 
For it is for your sake that I've borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. There is already a reproach on the Father. And as zeal for God's house consumes David, the reproach that's already on the Father is transferred to the, to the Lord's King, to Yahweh's King. That's what's happening here. Jesus pulls the facade of their love for God and exposes that it is in hatred of God. The reproach that they are already putting on the Father, Jesus makes plain when they reproach Him. The first two episodes of our text close with the disciples remembering. Verse 17, His disciples remembered. Verse 22, His disciples remembered. And so in each instance, a contrast is set up, not only with what has gone before, but what is going to be introduced. So, you have the men selling who are violating Scripture, contrasted with the disciples who, happens later, I believe, but nonetheless, the disciples who remember Scripture. But then also, while the disciples will later receive insight into the significance of this sign, you have the authorities who demand a sign. What sign do you show us for doing these things? From spirit-inspired remembering, we turn to Savior-provoking questioning. And there are at least three major problems with their question. The first is, they're obviously not sincere. How can we say that? Jesus points out their sin, which is known. And they question Him about something that's not yet known. This is redirection. Their sin is obvious. They don't want to own up to any of that. If they said something like, you're absolutely right, who are you? We're sinners. This man has just said something that's very true. That would have been a different scenario. That's not the occasion. They're wanting to redirect blame. They don't repent of reproaching the Father. They pivot to reproach the Son. But let's play devil's advocate. Jesus' identity is not yet known. I don't think that's the case. Let's just say that's their... We don't know who you are. Jesus' identity is not yet known. And they are the authorities... Don't they have the prerogative to ask, what authority do you do this upon? Nonetheless, their sin is known. This is not a humble inquiry. It's an arrogant accusation. And they're not repenting of their sin that is known ensures that they will not know Christ. It's a doubling down. It's the blind Pressing tightly their hands around their eyes. They don't want to see. Second, they demand a sign. Remember John the Baptist recognized Jesus' superiority. He recognized it. And John was sent for the purpose to testify to the light. To who? To Israel. And John said, I baptize for this reason that he might be made manifest. Jesus' identity is made known. They have already sent a delegation to John. They've already rejected his witness and his testimony. They are without excuse. Jesus has been made known by the Father through his servant John to the nation. God has spoken, and here they are demanding a sign. Paul in Romans 1.22 said the Jews demand signs. 
Mark 8 records this little episode. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus is not their jester. He does not perform under, uh, on demand. They are, he is not under their authority. They are under His authority. He is a son come into His Father's house. They are His Father's servants. They cannot domesticate this lamb. They will sacrifice this lamb. But it will be on His terms whenever it is according to the will of His Father and He chooses to lay His life down. The seed of the serpent cannot tame the Lamb of God. Third, even if Jesus performs a sign, it would be insufficient. It wouldn't be enough. Jesus performed many signs and they didn't believe. The blind cannot see the light no matter how bright it is. It must shine from within and give sight. What are we to make of that statement I read from Mark, though, where Jesus said, no sign will be given to a wicked and adulterous generation. Again in Matthew 11, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be a stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Okay? Verse 23. When they saw the signs. No sign, signs. Here Jesus is saying, you have this sign. Destroy this temple. Three days I will raise it. It's the same sign as the sign of Jonah. Those are the same. That's the sign that's given to them. But he's doing other signs. How we make sense of this. I think Acts chapter 17, Paul's sermon to the pagan Athenians, unlocks the puzzle. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is the testimony of the Father to the judgment of the Son, which all will face. The other signs are for believers. This sign is for all the unbelieving. The lifting up of the Son on the cross and raising Him from the grave is the sign of signs that this world has to deal with. This is how the resurrection is brought forward by the apostles as they preach to the Jews. Acts 13.5, Peter, You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are all witnesses. Harmonizes with what Paul says in the opening of Romans, chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Unbeliever, you don't need a sign. You have the sign of signs testified by 
God. He needs no authority, no scientist, no historian to say, this is what really happened. God has declared with his self-authenticating word, he's spoken. Everything else jives with it. All of history only continues to more and more back it up. Science has never debunked the scripture. Oh, it'll, it'll tout something for a while and then it'll walk it back. But God has spoken. Your demand for more is an arrogant rejection of his witness. You don't need a sign. You need faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ, hearing it with humility, not with pride. The sign of signs that Jesus promises the unbelieving world is this. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The first half of John, chapters 1 through 12, known as the book of signs, is preparation for the second half, chapter 13 onward, the book of glory, which centers exclusively on this sign of signs, the hour of His glory. And what's peculiar is how all the synoptic authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though Luke does it in Acts, I don't believe he does it in Luke, all of them corroborate what John records here about this sign, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. But none of them record that in Jesus' lips. Jesus doesn't say that anywhere, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's found on the lips of the false witnesses at his trial. This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days, Matthew 26, 61. Now that particular testimony was false, though, for two reasons. They got some things wrong. One, what they got wrong was they were not pursuing truth. They were pursuing the crucifixion of the truth. It wasn't justice they were after. It was injustice. So their testimony was false for that reason. But second, it's false because Jesus didn't say, I will destroy this temple. He said, destroy this temple. As in, you destroy this temple. And the beautiful irony is that he set things in motion right here at the beginning with his first visit as the Christ, as as acting in his public ministry. First visit to the temple and he sets things in motion so that they would destroy that temple. And he would raise it up. When dead men try to kill life, they lose. He rises because as 1-4 told us, in him was life. Or as Peter preached on Pentecost, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Acts 2, 22 through 24. But of all of this, what Jesus intends here, they are woefully ignorant. It has taken 46 years to build this temple. Original language makes it clear. It's still ongoing. It's taken 46 years so far, is the idea. It will not be completed until 66 AD. And then four years later, all comes tumbling down. So the temple's relatively new, especially by ancient standards. It's a marvel. It's a wonder. It's glorious. Can you see why the disciples then said to Jesus, Do you see these? Teacher, look, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, Mark 13.1. You you catch the excitement? Look at all this. And Jesus replies, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They will destroy Jesus' temple. He will rebuild it. He'll raise again. And then he will destroy the temple of stone for it never to rise again. Because he is the meeting place.
of God and man. That was a shadow, and the substance has now come. They miss his word of grace concerning the temple of his flesh. They will not miss his word of judgment concerning the temple of stone. And whereas they miss the point, once again we're told the disciples remember. And what marks them though, note, is not that they have immediate perception into this. There's just a holy submission that gives way to perception later. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. This is something we see throughout John, throughout the Gospels. It's later that they remember and understand. Here, they simply follow Jesus. The disciples not only remember, they believe. So Jesus has already made himself equivalent to the temple. And now, with the disciples' reaction here, you see that Jesus' words are made equivalent to Scripture. Jesus' words are God's words. God's words are God's word. The reason I say that is because when the prophets speak, they might be speaking God's word, if it is God's word. When Jesus speak, speaks, it is God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God. And when the word who is God speaks, his word is the word of God. Whenever the prophets wrote a letter, it might be the word of God. If Jesus wrote anything, it would be the word of God. If the prophets' words were recorded, they might be the word of God. If Jesus' words were recorded, any of them, even if it's, hello, John, it was the word of God. He's God speaking. They don't just remember the scripture and believe. They believe the word Jesus had spoken. This is why Jesus can say, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. No one else can speak that way. Now the belief of the disciples is set in contrast with the belief of the crowds. It's not only in contrast to the questioning of the authorities, but the belief of the crowds. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Two kinds of believing are happening here. Ninety-eight times John will use this verb, belief. He never uses the noun form. Always the verb, believe. Ninety-eight times. That is almost three times as many as all the gospel writers combined. But you need to notice there are two kinds of belief. There's real believing and there's spurious. Saving belief and spurious belief. This book was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Chapter 20 and verse 31. Not all believing is believing. You see that in John 8 where we read, So, the, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My word, you are, still, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they say, we're children of Abraham, we're free. And he says, you are in bondage and you are the spawn of Satan. Not all belief is belief. And the key to understanding this belief, the disciples believe the scripture and the word of Jesus. This belief happens when they saw the signs. See how signs are insufficient? When they saw the signs, signs by themselves, just themselves, signs can be a hindrance to true faith. There is a seeing of, the si of signs that is not a seeing of signs. To the number among the 5,000 that followed Jesus around the sea, to the other side, 
Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, John 6, 26. They saw the sign, they missed the significance. And Jesus makes this apparent when he calls for them to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and they say, we want no part of that. But Peter says, you have the words of life. Where else can we go? They didn't understand all those words. They would remember them later. They knew this much. Whatever he says, it's words of life. Many of these no doubt believe that Jesus is the Christ. They believe that. But they believed him to be the Christ they wanted. It does no good for you to believe in the Jesus you believe in. You must believe in the Jesus who is. Not the Jesus you want. Not the Jesus you believe in. The Jesus who is. Believe in that Jesus. The real Jesus. This book is written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. That's saving faith. Not the Christ of your own making. The Christ that God spoke of. Because they don't truly trust Jesus, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. It's the same word. It's the same belief word that's being used here. They didn't, they believed in Jesus, but it's not real belief. And so Jesus doesn't, let me put it this way. They, they faith Jesus. It's not real faith though. They faith Jesus and so Jesus doesn't faith them. He doesn't trust them. And the reason he doesn't entrust himself to them is because he knew all people. They did not really know him. He really knew them. Men need witness to Christ. Christ does not need witness to man. The darkness does not comprehend the light, but the light perfectly comprehends the darkness. Some of you, you question You don't believe in Jesus. So you, you believe good things about Jesus, but you question. And so you're outright opposed to Jesus. You believe in God, perhaps, but really, when it comes to the Christ of the Bible, you've got some questions. You demand a sign. You think you stand in some kind of authority. It needs to be proved to you. In some ways, yours is a healthier state because you know how you stand in relation to the Christ of the Bible. It's really clear to you. But creation testifies there is a God. And God, by His own word, testifies of His Son who was crucified for sinners and rose from the grave. God has spoken. Do not demand a sign as though you were in authority over God. Bow before the one with all authority. He has spoken and he's spoken in his son. He's spoken with self-authenticating authority. And recognize that the problem is not in... Think of the kind of things you believe on far less authority. The weatherman says it's going to rain tomorrow and you believe that? The problem... It's not in your head. The problem is not a lack of information in your mind. The problem is not the absence of truth in your head. The problem is the presence of pride in your heart. Others though, your religion has all the right external markers. It looks right. You come to the church Of the living God, the assembly of the saints in Jesus Christ. You don't question. You look to the Bible, you believe all its signs and wonders, but that's what you're after. Signs and wonders and experience. You don't really believe in Jesus. You believe in the Jesus you want to believe in. The Jesus that you've shaped according to your own desires. Do you see the same arrogance is in the heart? It's a rejection of the Jesus who is. 
on both counts. For both, my prayer is that, that you look to the Scripture now. And that the Spirit of God would testify its truth to your heart. And that you would receive it with humility. And that you would believe and you would have eternal life. And you would entrust your soul to Jesus. Who? Who is this Jesus? He is the zealous son of his father. Yes, there's grace in Christ, but there is anger, there is wrath, there is judgment. Jesus will not compromise his love of sinners for his love of his father. You cannot assume his redemption and his grace and his mercy and his love. Salvation was purchased by judgment. And if you don't cling to the one who bore judgment for sinners, you will bear his judgment. Jesus will bring what he bore if you don't bring your sin to him in confession. Jesus is not only the bearer of the judgment of God, he's the bringer of the judgment of God. And he is the temple that was destroyed by man but raised for our salvation. Man in sin crucified him. God in grace brought him, raised him from the grave. By His resurrection, the Father testified who the Son was. The resurrection is the Father's verdict correcting the false one that this world threw on Him. Christ alone is the meeting place of God and man. He is the priest. He is the Lamb. He is the temple. Only in Christ may sinners draw near to the holy God of heaven, and in Christ they draw near as sons. He is the Passover lamb who has borne judgment in the stead of sinners so that the wrath and judgment of God might pass over them and they not experience death, but rather covenant love and mercy and redemption and salvation and sanctification. He is the life. They destroyed the temple of His body, but He raised it up. The darkness cannot conquer the light. The grave cannot keep life in its belly. And He is the knower of men. He knows you as you truly are. He knows you as He knew these men. He knows you as He knew Nathaniel. And He knows not only who you are, He knows who you will be. He knows you as He knew Peter. You are Simon. You shall be called Cephas. And if you, right now, know something of who Christ is, you cannot know Him exhaustively. But if you're knowing something of the truth of who Christ is right now, and in light of that, you're beginning to know something of who you are right now. Flee to Him. Don't question. Don't reimagine Him as you would like Him to be and trust in that. Follow Him. He is the Word become flesh. He has the words of life. Follow Him. Come under Him as your shepherd and teacher. Learn of Him. Come with humility. Come seeking Him. If you even begin to do that, I believe it's a work of God's grace. If you begin to do that, you begin to approach John in that kind of way. You begin to approach this gospel saying, I don't know who this Jesus is, but I want to hear from Him. I believe it's just a matter of time. You approach that not with questioning like the authorities. Not with just a gung-ho belief of, oh, I want a Jesus. You approach it, teach me who you are. You will progress just like these disciples. So that one day where you're standing is, I don't know when he saved me. But I remember he spoke. I believe. Believe. In the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And 
And you have come to the temple. You draw near to the living God Himself. All your sins removed. You'll find something worth worshiping rightly and truly with all your being forever. Let's pray. Holy Father, again, having freshly heard your word, convict, grant repentance for all the false reasons we might have come to worship the truth today. Grant us a sincere love of Christ. May all of our worship be a shouting in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. And in His name right now we cry out for those who do not know You. That they would lay their questions down as though they were some authority and they would bow before You who has all authority. And that they would lay aside all their belief in the Jesus they want to believe in. And you would grant them belief in the Jesus who is, who's so much bigger than anything they could ever imagine or comprehend. They will never, ever tame your lamb. Father, for the glory of your name, may Christ be revered in this church. May this be a holy temple. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.